This past week, I read an article that highlighted some of the most intense and grueling endurance events that are held in various parts of the world. And here's how the article opened. It said this, think you're tough, think you're fit, think you're tenacious. If you're the outdoorsy sort, addicted to the high-octane pursuits and like the thought of challenging yourself amid spectacular scenery, you might want to lace up your trainers, pick up your paddle, get on your bike, climb into the saddle, step into those skis, and more for one of these grueling endurance events. You say, well, what kind of events are they referring to? Well, let me give you just a little sampling. The first event mentioned in the article is the Jungle Marathon, held every single year in Brazil. And the article notes, if you're a glutton for punishment, then this foot race will be pure delight. (laughs) It says it takes deep uh, place deep in Brazil's Amazonian rainforest, and runners must carry their own supplies, covering a distance of 150 miles over six days. Competitors can expect to clamber over hills and through swamps, mangroves, and thick jungle foliage, all the while trying not to fall prey to the local wildlife, which includes jaguars, deadly snakes, scorpions, ticks, and electric eels. (laughs) It goes on to say, as if that isn't stomach-churning enough, there's also the risk of heat stroke. But fortunately, there's a crack medical team on hand with donkeys on standby for emergency evacuations. The total cost of the trip... $3,185. I'm sorry, that's just for the entry fee. That's not even to get to Brazil. And if you're like me, you're thinking to yourself, man, as adventurous as that may seem, who would ever want to pay that much money to punish their own bodies, right? But that's not the only event listed in the article. Another grueling event that made the list is called the Brutal, (laughs) which is held every single year in North Wales. The article reads, The Brutal Double Iron Triathlon, which the longer the title, the harder the event, right? The Brutal Double Iron Triathlon to be held next September in the stunning setting of Snowdonia National Park in North Wales looks set to be a killer. The toughest of its kind in Britain, the course kicks off with a 4.8-mile swim in an icy lake, a 224-mile bike ride over calf-bustling hills, followed by a 51-and-a-half-mile run, Oh, and a little hike up and down Snowdon at 1,085 meters, which is the highest mountain in Wales. Competitors can expect to be on the move for around 42 hours, and I'm thinking, and be in bed for another 42 days, right? (laughs) And that's why the article goes on to say they don't call it the brutal for nothing. If you're like me, you're thinking, man, how can it get any more intense than that? I mean, I can't think of anything more grueling. I can't think of anything more exhausting or or that which would bring about more fatigue than that kind of event. But that's because you haven't heard about the king of all endurance races, which is the Marathon de Sabla, held every year in Morocco. And what's that event like? Well, the Marathon de Sabla is a six-day, 156-mile ultra marathon, which is equivalent to six regular marathons. In other words, you basically run one marathon every day for six days straight. The longest single stage is about 55 miles long. This multi-day race is held every year in the hot southern Moroccan desert, and it's considered to be the toughest foot race on earth. 
Well, there are many other challenging endurance events that were listed in the article, but time would fail us in considering them all. But one of the reasons I read the article, one of the reasons it, it sort of captured my attention is it illustrated to me how much we as people often like a challenge. Obviously not always to that extent, obviously not always to that degree, obviously not always to that far of distance, but generally speaking in our own little world and our own little way, many of us like to push ourselves with the goal of accomplishing a task, overcoming a challenge, or pushing through a particular obstacle. However, there are certain obstacles in life that we can't overcome. There are certain challenges in life that no matter, no matter how hard we try, we cannot achieve. And that is true not only on a, on a physical level, but also on a, on a mental or a, a cognitive level as well. I mean, have you ever stopped and, and thought deeply about that little squiggly sign in math that we call infinity? <laughs> that symbol represents a number that we really can't wrap our minds around. Or how about the universe in which we live? Scientists believe there are more than 200 billion stars in our galaxy and that our galaxy, the Milky Way, is only one of billions of galaxies in the entire universe. I don't know about you, but for me, that, that's really hard to fathom. That's really hard to wrap my mind around. Due to our limitations as finite beings, due to our limitations as having finite minds, there are certain concepts that don't make a lot of sense to us and are simply too hard for us to fully grasp and to completely understand. This morning, as we open the Word of God, we'll be encountering such a truth as that one, uh, as that one and that truth is found in John chapter 3. So open your Bibles, if you would, and meet me, if you would, at the third chapter of John's Gospel, John chapter 3. <clears throat> If you were with us last week, you recall that we looked at verse, verses 1 through 16 of this great chapter. And this chapter, as you know, contains one of the most recognizable, familiar verses in all the Bible. And that verse, of course, is John three sixteen, where Jesus said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. To Christians living in the 21st century, John 3.16 is pretty routine for us, isn't it? Most of us memorize it at a young age, so there's really nothing new about it. It's pretty second nature to us. However, as we looked at last week, the man to whom it was said was literally devastated by the words that are contained in that verse. To us, these words are extremely familiar, but the man to whom it was said was absolutely shocked because it was totally foreign to his understanding of what it meant to be saved, what it meant to be right with God. Of course, the man who was shocked, the man who was devastated was none other than Nicodemus. And you remember the story. Nicodemus came to Jesus by night and he said to him in verse 2, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Nicodemus evidently was either present at, uh, obviously he was present at Passover. We know that from John chapter 2 because that's where Jesus had performed these miracles, performed these signs. John chapter 2 verse 23, it says, Now when he, that is Jesus, was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the fe uh, feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he had done. And so Nicodemus either saw those signs firsthand or he heard about it indirectly. But either way, he went to Jesus to investigate. He went to find out who this man really was. And so Nicodemus goes to Jesus and he says, look, nobody can do what you can do 
unless God is with him. If that's evident. That's obvious. In verse 3, Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, in our minds, as we talked about last week, that statement really isn't all that big of a deal, is it? Because we talk about the importance of being born again all the time. You hear us talk about it from the pulpit. You hear about it in your various Sunday school classes. You, you, you hear it mentioned in, your various, uh, in various Christian literature, various Christian books. The term born again is one that we refer to a lot, and it's one in which we are very, very familiar. But the man to whom it was spoken, that is to the one of the most religious men in all the nation of Israel, this would have dropped like a bomb. Jesus essentially told Nicodemus, you want to enter the kingdom of God? Then you need to set aside everything that you've ever done and start from the bottom. Nicodemus, you have to start all over. That's the message Jesus had for Nicodemus. That's the message he had for the man who took religion to its zenith, its apex. He took religion to its highest and its noblest level. He basically told him, Nicodemus, everything you've done up to this point won't lead you anywhere except to eternal damnation. And so you need to set all that aside, everything that you've ever done, and start all over. Of course, in verse 9, Nicodemus responded to Jesus by saying, how can these things be? I mean, Nicodemus, listen, he was in complete shock because in one simple conversation, his whole life system was turned upside down. Nicodemus couldn't believe what he was hearing. He couldn't believe that all of his labor and all of his toil and all of his religious achievements amounted to nothing. And Jesus, in effect, told him, Nicodemus, you need to come to grips with reality. Salvation is not by works. Salvation does not come by keeping the law. Salvation does not come by keeping the Sabbath. Salvation is something that can't be earned. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And of course, we see that in the climax of the passage where in verse 16, Jesus tells him, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. In other words, salvation is not man earning his way to God, but instead it's God reaching out in love to man. That's the message of the gospel. And listen, that's the message that Nicodemus needed to hear more than anything else, wasn't it? I mean, what Nicodemus didn't need was more rules. What Nicodemus didn't need was more attendance at church. What Nicodemus didn't need was more giving to charities or more involvement in religious activities. What Nicodemus needed more than anything else was to be saved from his sin and to be born again by the Spirit of God. And so that's where we left off last week. In verse 17, we see that the conversation continues. Really, it turns into a monologue at this point because Nicodemus is absolutely silent from this point forward. And Jesus continues in verse 17. He says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned. But he who does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. One of the words that is used repeatedly and repetitively throughout the last half of Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus is the word believe. 
In fact, if you back up from verse 17, you go all the way back to verse 12 and and, and consider verses 12 through 21, the word believe is used a total of seven times in that section. And the interesting thing about that is that earlier in the conversation, Jesus used the term born again or born from above, which emphasizes the role of God in our salvation, where the Spirit regenerates the sinner and gives him or her new life. Of course, we talked about that truth last week by looking at passages such as 2 Corinthians 5.17, where Paul said, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. That's what happens at salvation, isn't it? Spirit of God regenerates us. The Spirit of God cleanses us. He reconstructs us on the inside by giving us new life. That truth, of course, is also affirmed in Titus 3.5, which we looked at last week, which says we're saved not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, through the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. And that's what Jesus was referring to here when he referred to the new birth. And that is what Jesus had in mind when he told Nicodemus he needed to be born again. And so you have sort of this tension, don't you? In John chapter 3, between God's role in salvation and man's personal responsibility. In verses 1 through 10, there's an emphasis on God's divine act of regenerating a lost sinner. And in verses 11 through 21, there's an emphasis on man's responsibility to believe the gospel and to receive Jesus Christ as personal Lord and Savior. And so here's the question we want to try to tackle this morning in just a small little window. Who is responsible for our salvation? Does salvation involve the sovereign will of God or does it involve the personal responsibility of man? Is God responsible for my salvation Or am I responsible for my salvation? And the answer to that question, listen, is one that we're not all that comfortable with because the answer to that question is both. Both. In Scripture, there exists a tension between the doctrine of divine sovereignty and the doctrine of human faith or the doctrine of human responsibility. In many passages of Scripture, you'll find an emphasis on God's sovereign work in drawing the sinner to himself. And at the same time, you'll find many other passages that emphasize man's responsibility to respond to the call of salvation in one's life. And so both elements are true when it comes to salvation. Salvation involves both the sovereign work of God and the personal responsibility of man. And you might be wondering, well, how does that work out? I mean, logically speaking, both shouldn't be able to work. Those twin elements shouldn't be able to run side by side in a parallel fashion and both be true at the same time. From a logical perspective, we should be able to say that salvation is either all of God or all of man, but not both. And yet what we see here in Scripture repeatedly throughout the Bible is that both aspects of salvation are true. And where the problem enters in, listen, is when some people try to emphasize one aspect at the expense of the other, just so it makes sense to them. In other words, rather than just allow God's word to say what it says, there are some who feel the need to lock into one side or the other just to relieve the tension in their minds. It's like the individual I had a conversation with a while back who told me he firmly believed in God's sovereign work of election and salvation. And of course, I responded to him by saying, that's a good thing. That's a good, scripture teaches that. I'm all for that. I, I firmly believe that. And then he followed up by saying, because of that, I don't believe that we have any part, that we don't have any role, sort of a a fatalistic mindset to salvation. I responded by saying, that's a problem. 
And I wanted to share with him that in order to hold to that belief, he would have to ignore so many passages of Scripture that say we must believe and that we must repent and whosoever will may come. That's often what happens when people wrestle with this particular topic regarding salvation. Naturally, people want to assign God to a a certain category that they feel most comfortable with and, and that fits their box of logic to relieve the tension. And my response to that is this. Hey, don't feel like you need to relieve the tension. I mean, shouldn't we expect that there would be certain things about God? Shouldn't we expect that there would be certain things about his character and, 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 and regarding the working out of his plan that would go beyond our comprehension? Absolutely. And guess what? This is one of those truths. The Bible teaches election. The Bible teaches predestination. But it also clearly teaches that man will bear the full weight of responsibility for his choice to either receive Christ or to reject him. To see a passage that illustrates these twin truths, turn with me, if you would, in Ma- to Matthew chapter 11. Over to Matthew chapter 11 to see the tension, to see the balance of both the sovereignty of God and salvation and man's responsibility to respond. Matthew chapter 11, verse 27. And notice what Jesus says here. Matthew chapter 11, verse 27. Jesus says this, All things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son. Listen to this part. And the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. This verse, of course, emphasizes the doctrine of divine sovereignty. Jesus tells us that the only one who knows the Son, listen, is the one to whom the Son reveals. In other words, the only, only way that you can know Jesus as the Son of God is if he wills that to happen. You can't know the Son unless the Son wills you to know him. That's what verse 27 teaches. It teaches and emphasizes, emphasizes the sovereign work of God in our salvation. But notice it doesn't stop with that. Look at what Jesus says in the very next verse, verse 28. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. How can Jesus say that? How can he, on the one hand, emphasize the sovereign purpose of God in salvation, and then, and then in the very next verse, and the very next statement, offer a genuine invitation for anyone and everyone to come? And the answer is this, because both are true. Both principles are true. Both are parallel realities. Salvation involves the sovereign work of God, It involves the personal responsibility of man. And we see that not only in this chapter, but also in John chapter 6. So turn with me, if you would, skip uh, past our text in John chapter 3 and turn to John chapter 6. If there's any chapter in the Bible that, in my opinion, best illustrates the balance between the sovereign will of God and the personal choice, the personal responsibility of man, it is this chapter right here, John chapter 6. And of course, Jesus here is speaking to the multitudes of people whom he had just miraculously fed with a few loaves of bread, a couple fish. And so this large group of people are following him. And this uh, interaction takes place the following day, verse 22 tells us. And in verse 35, it says, And Jesus said to this crowd of people, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. That's a genuine offer of salvation. Jesus offers a plea to the multitudes to come and to experience the life that he alone could offer, he alone could give. Notice this verse doesn't say, he who is elect 
shall never hunger, or he who is predestined shall never thirst. No, the emphasis is on human responsibility. He who comes, he who believes. Skip down to verse 37. All that the Father gives me, he will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. Did you notice the switch there? In verse 35, Jesus emphasized the importance of human belief. But here, he talks about the electing and the choosing work of the Father. And you say, well, which one is it? Both. Both are true. Look down at verse 39. It says, this is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up on the last day. Listen, you couldn't find a stronger statement in all the Bible that supports the doctrine of God's election than this one. Salvation involves the sovereign will of God in choosing those who will be his own. But notice what Jesus says in the very next verse. Look, God just refuses to be constrained to a box, doesn't he? Verse 40, and this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up on the last day. You see, salvation involves both God's choosing and man's believing. And listen to this. The Bible offers no apology for these twin truths. You say, that's so difficult to comprehend. That's so, I can't put my mind around that. And I would say this. Hey, welcome to the club. I mean, I think if we were all honest, we'd admit that there's a certain mystery to the nature of God and how he carries out his sovereign purposes, how he carries out his sovereign plan. I like what Jerry Bridges writes in his book, Trusting God, when he says, hey, the first thing we need to keep in mind is that God is infinite in his ways as well as in his being. A finite mind simply cannot comprehend an infinite being beyond what he has expressly revealed to us. Because of this, some things about God will forever remain a mystery. And the relationship of the sovereign will of God to the freedom and moral responsibility of people, listen, is one of those mysteries. And then he quotes Basil Manley, one of the founding fathers of the Southern Baptist Convention. While commenting on this difficult subject in one of his sermons, Manley said this. He said, the scriptures do not undertake to explain mysteries. They leave them unexplained. There's a difference between difficulties and mysteries. Difficulties may be removed. Mysteries cannot without a new revelation or the bestowment of a higher intellect. And you know what? He's absolutely right, isn't he? Later, Bridges writes this. He says, we need to realize once again that there's no conflict in the Bible between God's sovereignty and our responsibility. Both concepts are taught with equal force and with never an attempt to reconcile them. And therefore, let us hold equally to both, doing our duty as it is revealed to us in the scriptures and trusting God to sovereignly work out his purpose in and through our lives. That's a great quote, isn't it? Both truths are taught with equal force and our job is simply to accept them both. When I think of the tension between human responsibility and God's sovereignty, I think of the great preacher Charles Spurgeon who said this, quote, he said, shall we never be able to drive into men's minds the truth that predestination and free agency are both facts? He said, men sin as freely as birds fly in the air and they are altogether responsible for their sin. And yet everything is ordained and foreseen by God. The foreordination of God in no degree interferes with the responsibility of man. He says, I've often been asked by persons to reconcile the two truths. And my only reply is, they need no reconciliation, for they never fell out. 
He says, why should I try to reconcile these two friends? Prove to me that these two truths do not agree. In that request, I've set you a task as difficult as that which you propose to me. These two facts are parallel, line, uh, parallel lines. I cannot make them unite, but you cannot make them cross each other. Permit me also to add that I've long ago given up the idea of making all my beliefs into a system. I believe, but I cannot explain. I fall before the majesty of revelation and simply adore the infinite Lord. That's a powerful statement, isn't it? Spurgeon refused to do what many theologians are guilty of doing today. And that is to try to fit God into this neatly packaged box. And rather, rather than hold on to one side of the theological rope and let go of the other, listen, Spurgeon was committed to both. He was committed to holding firmly to both sides. Why? Because that's what Scripture does. I mean, just think about the Apostle Peter. In 1 Peter 1, 2, Peter referred to his audience as the elect according to the foreknowledge of God. But in Acts chapter 2, in the day of Pentecost, when the crowds of people responded to his great message and asked him, how could we be right with God? Peter preached repentance. You say, well, how could he do that? I mean, why didn't he preach that some could believe and, and others couldn't because of election? And the answer is, listen, while Peter firmly believed in the sovereignty of God in election, he also believed in the necessity for people to freely respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Listen, Peter had no problem with either truth. Same was true of the apostle Paul. In Ephesians 1.4, Paul wrote that all believers were chosen before the foundation of the world. And yet only eight verses later, in Ephesians 1, uh, chapter 1, verse 12, he referred to believers as those who trusted in Christ to the praise of his glory. Paul found no problem teaching both truths. Why? Because both present the accurate balance of God's glorious plan of salvation. One more passage I want us to turn to by way of introduction is Romans chapter 9. Turn with me if you would there, and then we'll settle on our text in John chapter 3. Romans chapter 9. <clears throat> There's one chapter in all the Bible that extols the divine election of God. It's Romans chapter 9. In chapters 1 through 8, Paul explains the greatness and the glory and the wonder of our salvation in Jesus Christ. And what he does is, he, as he approaches chapter 9, he pours out his heart over a group of people who, by and large, had rejected the gospel, namely the Jewish people. And in verse 1, we see him bear his heart, where he writes in verse 1, I tell the truth of Christ. I am not lying, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great, that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed uh, from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen according to the flesh, who are Israelites. Listen, that's how Paul felt for the Jewish people. He had a burden for them. He wanted them to be saved. In verses four through five, Paul goes on to, to discuss the great privileges that Israel had, the great privileges that were there, theirs by virtue of, of being God's, in a way, chosen people, chosen nation to operate his plan. They had the covenants. They had the law. They had the promises. It was their line through which the Messiah came. But notice what Paul says in verse 6. But it, is not that the, uh, but it is not that the word of God has taken no effect. And look at this statement. For they are not all Israel who are of Israel. That's kind of a shocker. Are you saying, Paul, that all the descendants of Abraham aren't true heirs 
of the promise? What's going on here? Skip down to verse 13. It says, as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Wow, that's quite a statement. Are you saying that God chooses some for divine blessing and others he leaves to divine judgment? That doesn't seem fair. How could God make that choice, listen, before they're even born? In verse 14, Paul says, what shall we say then? Is there any unrighteousness, any unfairness with God? Certainly not. In other words, is there any unfairness in the sovereign election of God? Any unfairness in the sovereign purposes of God? None whatsoever. Verse 15. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. In other words, it's God's prerogative to choose whom he wills for salvation, and it's all based, are you ready for this? It's all based on grace. It's not based, listen, it's not based on God's looking down the corridor of time and choosing those who would eventually choose him. That's not a biblical concept of election. That's not an accurate understanding of God's divine work in election and salvation. His choice is not based on man's behavior or on man's choosing of him. It is based solely and entirely and exclusively on his infinite mercy and his infinite grace. And Paul continues in verse 18, therefore he has mercy on whom he wills and whom he wills, he hardens. And you say, well, that just doesn't seem right. That doesn't seem fair. And if you're in that position, then you need to hear verse 20, just like every one of us needs to hear verse 20, where Paul says, but indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? In other words, right, what right do we have to question the sovereign purposes of God? The Bible teaches that all of us deserve the wrath of God as sinners. Therefore, it's the grace and the mercy of God that anyone is saved. The right question to ask isn't how come all aren't saved. The right question to ask is how come anyone is saved? The right question to ask isn't how come there's only one way to salvation. The right question to ask is how come there's even a way to salvation? It's the grace and the mercy of God that offers salvation to all and it guarantees that some will respond in faith and repentance and belief. And so here in chapter 9, you have one of the strongest cases for God's divine election in the entire Bible. But notice, if you will, the switch in chapter 10. Turn to chapter 10, if you would. And in verse 1, Paul continues, and he says, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. And the question is, why aren't they saved? Verse 2, for I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to election. Is that what it says? No. It says they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. In other words, their problem wasn't that they hadn't been chosen. Their problem was willful ignorance, willful unbelief. Look at verse 3. It says, for they being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness have not submitted to the righteousness of God. Listen, that was the problem. They put all their stock in their own righteousness. They put all their stock in their own works and they refused to submit to the righteousness of God. And so what's the solution? Skip down to verse nine. That if you confess with your mouth to the Lord Jesus Christ and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. 
For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. And so the question is, how is a man saved from his sin? By believing in Christ. By believing in the gospel. Look at, look at verse 13. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be what? Saved. How does a man experience salvation? Chapter 9 tells us that man is saved as a result of election. And chapter 10 tells us that a man is saved because he believes. You say, John, that is so hard to understand. I know it is. But listen, don't let that truth paralyze you. Because in the very next verse, Roman, uh, in, in verse 14, it says, How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a what? A preacher. And how shall they preach unless they are sent? You see, preaching is important. Evangelism, sharing God's truth with lost sinners, your lost neighbors, lost coworkers at work, that's important. It's, it's critical to the work of God. Why? Because verse 17 reads, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And so throughout scripture, you have these twin principles of God's sovereignty and human responsibility that seem contradictory, but in reality are both true. And our job as Christians is to simply accept them both and appreciate what each brings to the table. I mean, you have on the one side, the doctrine of divine election, which informs our worship. And on the other side, you have the doctrine of man's responsibility, which motivates us to share the gospel and to preach the gospel to lost sinners. Both teachings are presented throughout scripture. You see them in Romans. You see it in Ephesians. You see it in 1 Peter. You see it in Matthew. And you also see it in the gospel of John. So with all that as background, <laughs> let's turn to our text in John chapter 3. And I know what some of you are thinking. You're thinking, John, if that was the introduction, then how long is the sermon going to be? And so uh, let me just tell you, it's, it'll be short and sweet. John chapter 3. Our time will be short and sweet here in this chapter as we close out this dialogue or monologue between Jesus and Nicodemus. Verse 17 says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be what? Saved. That's a powerful verse, isn't it? The reason God sent his Son into the world was to offer salvation. That was his purpose. His purpose wasn't condemnation. His purpose wasn't judgment. Listen, that will be his purpose in his second coming. We're told that in Revelation 19. But in his first coming, his ultimate goal was to offer a world of lost sinners a means to eternal life. What a gracious window into the heart of God, isn't it? Reminds me of 1 Timothy 2, 4, where Paul said, God desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. We're told in Luke 19:10 that Jesus came. Why? To seek and save that which was lost. In verse 18, Jesus goes on, he who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. Did you notice the reason Jesus gives for men being condemned? It's not because he wasn't chosen. It's not because he wasn't elect. The main reason man is condemned is because he refuses to believe in the name of the only begotten son of God. You say, well, why would anyone do that? Why would anyone want to forfeit the gracious and wonderful gift of eternal life? Verse 19, and this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Mark this in your minds, beloved. The number one reason people refuse to believe in Jesus 
is because they love their sin. That's the number one issue. The number one issue isn't ignorance. The number one issue isn't that man wants the truth but can't get access to it. After all, we have evidence in Scripture that God will move heaven and earth to get the truth to those who respond to what light God has given them. The problem isn't a lack of access. The problem isn't some kind of misunderstanding. The main problem, are you ready for this, is a love for sin. It's not that men can't believe. It's that men won't believe. They won't believe. Men and women love their sin and therefore they want nothing to do with God. And that's why verse 20 tells us, for, everything, for everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. Unsaved men and women don't want to come to the light, Jesus tells us. That is, they don't want to associate with God's people. They don't want to associate with God's truth. They may attend church from time to time and even pick up the Bible from time to time, read it here and there. But they don't like to get too close to the light because it's too convicting. They don't like to hear about the subjects such as sin and judgment and eternal life because those topics, they're too uncomfortable. They don't sit well. But here's the contrast. Look at verse 21. But he who does the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. That's the contrast, isn't it? While the unbeliever has no desire to come to the light, the true believer does. In fact, the true believer wants his deeds to be seen because in Matthew 5, 16, it, Jesus said, let your light so shine before uh, men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. What a contrast, isn't it? What a contrast that is from the unsaved man who loves the darkness so he can pursue his sin without any regret, without any way violating or, 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 or concerned about his conscience. And so where do you stand in light of all that we looked at this morning? Where do you stand? In other words, what choice are you making right now? Jesus or sin? Light or darkness? Salvation or judgment? Please understand that no one will stand before God one day and say, God, the reason I didn't believe is because I wasn't chosen. Listen, that excuse won't fly with God. The only reason people will face eternal judgment and eternal punishment is because they refused to believe. In Matthew 25, 41, Jesus said that, that hell was created for the devil and his angels. But many will end up there. Why? Not because God wills for them to go there, but because they choose to go there. And so let me ask you, is that you this morning? I hope so. Or I hope not, I should say. <laughs> that totally turned around our, our gospel of grace, didn't it? <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> I hope not. In all seriousness, if you're here today and you're without Christ, I encourage you to surrender your heart to him today. And just remember, the Lord is not willing that any should perish, any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's the heart of God, isn't it? God is by nature a savior, and he longs for people to come. Whosoever will may come. Come. That's what Jesus says. Come. Let's close in a word of prayer. <clears throat> With your heads bowed and your eyes closed, I want to give you just a, a minute just to evaluate your own spiritual life, your own personal life, your own personal condition before the Lord. And as you're sitting here this morning, ask yourself the question, do I know Jesus Christ? Do I have a, a, a personal relationship with him? 
Have I repented of my sins and surrendered my life to him? If the answer is no, I just would encourage you to, to let go of anything, anything that might be holding you back and to give your life to him today. Jesus says, whosoever will may come. He says to all, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Respond to the call of the gospel and give your life to Jesus today. And Father, I thank you for the glorious and wonderful gift of salvation. In one sense, it is so simple and that even a child can understand it. Even a a child can embrace it for himself. And yet in another sense, as we've seen this morning, there's a, a unique complexity to it due to your sovereign purposes and due to our own personal responsibility. And so, Father, we pray that you would help us to not feel like we need to, to, to relieve that tension theologically. Help us to embrace both and to stand in awe of the wonder and the joy and the salvation that is ours in Jesus Christ. And Lord, for those who are here today who have yet to surrender to Jesus Christ, I pray that today would be the day of salvation for them and that they would no longer choose to walk in darkness, but instead they would turn to the light so that they could experience the promise of salvation and eternal life that comes only through you. We ask this in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen.